for our listeners, it's really, really important to remember on this issue for standing when you're dealing with non-parent and parent, I mean, really anyway, but specifically for non-parent and parent litigation, you've got to make sure you're thinking about properly preserving that objection on standing. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today we're excited to welcome Jimmy Evans to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Jimmy has been practicing law in Texas since 1995 and has been board certified in family law since 2010. He handles a full range of family law cases, including divorce, child custody litigation, collaborative law, and grandparents' rights. Jimmy has been named a super lawyer every year since 2015. He's handled over 100 jury trials in his years of practice and currently practices in the Austin area. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, Holly, thank you for having me as a guest. And um, and so I'm a Texas native, born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, initially, uh, ultimately graduated from a small school, Austin College up in Sherman, Texas. Found my way to the tra- uh, the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office as an intern and graduated from then Texas Wesleyan School of Law, which is now Texas A&M School of Law. And began my career as a prosecutor at Tarrant County District Attorney's Office. Spent about five years there. Um, we have lots of war stories I could share with you from that, but that's not today. I uh, ended up finding my way to Austin um, and uh, ultimately started uh, finding my way into family law after founding a bilingual uh, Spanish practice serving the Spanish community here in Texas or in the Austin area. Um, which ultimately translated into me uh, becoming uh, board certified and using that experience to start my practice now, which is known as Evans Family Law Group. So I've been board certified since 2010 um, and have and ultimately was able fortunate enough to sit on the statewide council that creates the board certification exam and writes the exam and grades it. Um, And that was a really awesome experience. Um, In light of some of the things we're talking about today, I was able to, and fortunate enough to write two of the SAPSER questions in the previous three years. So that was interesting, including one on the topic of today in race CJC. And so uh, with all of that, uh, that's my background. I have done all those jury trials, 14 now in family law. And so, that, that's I'm a trial litigator in family law, and that's primarily what we do 24-7, divorce, custody, and family law-related issues. It's interesting to me that you've done 14 family law jury trials because I've been doing family law since 2008, and I have had exactly zero jury trials. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't see them come up a lot. I think there have been a handful of cases where it was a legitimate possibility, but you know, why do you think you've had so many? I mean, as far as family lawyers go, I think that's a lot. Yeah. Well, the truth is that the first five of those were when I was trying to get started here in Travis County. And I did those with um, um, CPS type cases. You know, I was on the appointment list. And frankly, at that time, the the whole council for attorneys to represent parents was getting started. And there really weren't any attorneys at that time that had jury experience. And so they were looking for a family law attorney or just somebody with that kind of experience that would actually take those to jury and represent those parents. And I raised my hand and was glad to do it. So those were my first five. Um, After that, Honestly, the next two came because I was trying to get board certified and I had to have three jury trials uh, within that time frame. And I volunteered uh, to help people with their fees if they would just let me do their case. I mean, that's the honest answer Um, and got my last family law jury trial up in uh, with John McMaster in Williamson County uh, to qualify to sit for the board certification exam. So it was specifically for that. After that, uh, the others have come just being hired and retained, you know, to to do them. And um, and one in common law, I've done a jury trial for common law marriage disputes. I've done I've done a couple of private termination cases. Um, so, you know, uh, just as those opportunities have come. Our main topic today is going to be standing. And I think that's one of the key points of law that a lot of attorneys get wrong is thinking that CJC is a standing case because it is not. Um, So in CJC, little known fact, maybe it's not a little known fact, but 
um, that was actually our second mandamus in that case. And the first mandamus was in Ray Clay out of the second district court of appeals. And that case dealt with standing. And that one we were, um, the case started out with two sets of non-parents. We had grandparents and we had the fiance and fiance was the subject of CJC. So in our first mandamus in Ray Clay, we were successfully able to kick out the grandparents on standing, but we were not successfully able to kick out the fiance on standing. So let's start out kind of backtracking just a little bit from that. Um, can you explain what standing is for anyone who might not know? Yeah, let me uh, on that question. I have my old man glasses here to to read if we're on camera. Sorry about that. But um, in in a in a case that you and I were talking about this morning, in Ray J O L and I C L children, here the court talks about standing being that the Texas Family Code defines who has standing in Sapsers, right? And that's what you're talking about because there's various ways and forms of the ability to meet standing, and that statute guides the evidence that must be presented. And then the court says standing is simply the right to be heard. It does not determine who will prevail on the merit. But essentially standing is, you know, the idea legally whether or not a party has in their own legal capacity the ability to seek relief. Um, it's not the ultimate issue of whether or not they will win on their ultimate ask or what we call relief that they'll obtain that from the court. In a baseball analogy, it simply gets you onto the field. It doesn't allow you to play the game. It just gets you into the stadium and onto the field. It's often misunderstood because I think a lot of family law practitioners, especially new ones, take it for granted when they file one of these original petitions. They just go grab this language, you know, standard kind of language in their form sets or whatever, and they don't really think about it um, and they file it. And thinking it's just taken for granted, to be honest with you, that's what I see in my practice. Um, and then all of a sudden you run into uh, somebody like Holly Draper who knows how to contest that. And you're having a hearing contesting standing. And so but but that's really the answer to the question. Standing is just whether or not you have the legal right to seek relief from the court and file a petition of some sort to ask to have that relief from the court. And another important fact about uh, standing is that it is jurisdictional. So if the court does not have standing to over a particular party or that party doesn't have standing, any order that the court issues is going to be void. So attorneys should really be paying attention to the issue of standing. You know, in cases, you know, divorce or sapser between mom and dad, it's really obvious that everybody has standing. I think where it comes into play a lot more and becomes a much more nuanced issue is when we're talking about non-parent standing. So that's where we're really going to focus our discussion today. Um, sort of the precursor to dealing with CJC type issues is, is there standing? You know, if you have a non-parent or non-parent come into your office and you know, present you with a fact pattern of their case, the very first question you should be asking is, if there is a non-parent involved is, does this person have standing? So right. talk to us a little bit about some of the different statutes under which a non-parent could possibly have standing. There's all kinds of different standing. Um, there's, you know, the, the most common are like step parent kind of standing for people who argue that they've had care, custody and control for six months or more preceding the filing or intervention or intervention of uh, in a SAPS or a custody suit. Uh, there's their standing for what's called significant harm. That's another very commonly uh, sought, uh, especially like for grandparents or third parties where a child's emotional or physical development or may be subjected to significant harm um, if that standing is not granted or in the reverse, if the, you know, that person's access to the child is removed kind of a thing. Um, and also, so, but, and, and even from there, there's um, any number of different forms of standing under the family code. So really our standing is going to fall under one of two statutes. It's either going to fall under 10203 or it's going to fall under 10204 if we're talking about a non-parent custody case. So under 10203, the two that I have dealt with the most would be 10203A9, which is the actual care control and possession for at least six months preceding 
filing of the suit. Now, you mentioned step parent in the context of that. Um, there's actually a different statute that we refer to as the step parent statute, which would be 102.03a.11. Um, those are the two standing statutes that were used in CJC for the fiance. He was not a step parent. It does not require you to actually be a step parent. We just call it the step parent statute under 102.03a.11. Um, that one specifically requires someone to have lived in the home, primary home, with a parent and the child for more than six months, and the parent has died. So on, with respect to 102.03a.9, I think this is the most commonly litigated standing statute for non-parents. Talk to us a little bit about what that statute requires. Well, that statute um, you know, states that a person other than a foster parent who has had actual care, control, and possession of the child for at least six months, ending not more than 90 days preceding the date of the filing of the petition, uh, would theoretically have standing uh, in order to file either intervention or an original suit uh, for some kind of managing or conservatorship arrangement. It's an intensive fact question. It's intensively fact, you know, uh, this con whether or not the courts are going to grant that. Um, and all of those terms are important because the courts have, there's a lot of different cases interpreting, quote, actual care. And what that means and it's a it, that can be a factual dispute what the term control actually means uh, what the term possession of the child and what that actually means and there's a lot of cases out there that interpret each one of those three different elements sometimes in the same set of facts and sometimes in the same case sometimes it's just one of those particular elements and it's important to understand, um, at least in my opinion, in that statute, it's an and, it's not an or. It's actual care, control, and possession of the child for at least six months. And so that's an important and essential ingredient, if you will, in order to meet that standing requirement under A9. So when you talk about it that way, it sounds like this should be a high relatively high burden to meet. But as you and I were talking offline, I think you, we both agree that this is actually not a particularly difficult hurdle for a non-parent to overcome. The Texas Supreme Court gave us the case, case of HS uh, back a few years ago, and that's sort of the benchmark for discussing 102.003A9. But there has, you know, that particular case, the grandparents were really, truly the primary caretakers of the children for a long period of time. But the opinion in HS, I think, has been used in subsequent cases to really water down that burden and to really water down what is required uh, to show this. You know, for example, in, in Ray Clay, which, as I mentioned before, was the predecessor mandamus to CJC, you know, we had a situation where the fiance was living in the home with mom and the child, the primary, quote, primary home with mom and the child, and he was not a primary caretaker. He was just there helping out. The types of facts that they, you know, raised for why he had standing was that he'd sometimes get up in the middle of the night with the child. He took her to the doctor one time. He would make her chocolate milk in the morning. I mean, these are very ancillary things that anybody living in the home would do just because they're a decent person and helping. Um, it's not being a primary caretaker. The other interesting thing from Enri Clay, you know, I tried to argue in our mandamus that the collective total of time should be at least six months that this person was living in the primary home because um, there, you know, it was the primary residence. The evidence was that he was in the primary home with the child 54% of the time over 10 or 11 months. And everyone agreed, if you added up all the time he was living in the home with the child, it did not equal six months. And the fourth court of appeals rejected that argument and said, basically, if it's the primary home and the calendar says six months have passed, you're going to get in the door. So, you know, if I'm representing a non-parent, I am going to quote to Enrique Clay all day long because anybody who was living in that primary residence is going to get in the door, basically. Yeah, and, and it's a fact question. And, and, you know, the courts don't necessarily require that time to be consecutive, as we all know. Um, it doesn't have to be 
time specific. I mean, uh, and I think you're right. I think as long as that window is open for that six months, uh, NRA uh, HS basically gives us the three requirements that the courts look at for that fact inquiry. And that's whether or not the non-parent was playing a quote parent-like role uh, by one of the three following things. One, one, sharing a principal residence with the child. Two, providing for the child's daily physical and psychological needs. And three, exercising guidance, governance, and direction similar to that typically exercised on a day-to-day basis by parents with the children. And there is, quote, no requirement that the non-parent's care and control be exclusive. And so as long as, as the parties asserting standing can, uh, can adequately uh, raise a fact question about those three things, and, and it, even if the evidence is, quote, thin, because the, this, this case that you and I were talking about offline, NRA BAB, that's exactly what the court states is, quote, even though the available proof was thin, we find sufficient evidence and reasonable inferences ultimately that supported the standing uh, for the non-parents in that particular case. So I have read BAB and I've cited it in many of my uh, appellate briefs on that deal with the issue of standing. It's been a while since I looked at it and I'm sure others listening are not familiar. So can you tell us generally what that case was about and how it dealt with standing? Yeah, um, so this is a case similar to what you're, you were talking about under A11, uh, but actual care, custody and control, but the mother had become deceased um, and this was a contested case between the father of the child and the maternal grandparents. Um, and ultimately what happened is that the, the, the court cites in HS and those standards and those fact questions that you and I just talked about. And they were fact questions because the dad was in the picture while the mom was living with her parents. Um, they had this loose agreement for the mom to have possession of the child for, say, like Friday night to Saturday or something on short periods of time because the mom was struggling with sobriety. The case doesn't go into a lot of details other than that. Um, and so no question, the grandparents in many ways were providing those actual daily caretaking functions. What's interesting, ultimately, is the court comments how the grandparents failed to produce that evidence um, specifically. Um, but the dad was in the picture, was um, uh, exercising visitation, had weekends, had uh, at some points in time would have additional periods of time, uh, like weeks or a couple of weeks here and there. And so, it, you know, they, they ended up having the, the case ultimately is decided first on the ground of standing because that was the first contested issue. And then subsequently, whether or not uh, they had overcome the fit parent presumption to be appointed as a non-parent joint managing conservator over the presumption of a fit parent against the dad. And so we can talk about that if you want to, but that's essentially what the fact pattern was. So it sounds like that one was sort of similar to Enri Clay and that these people had a relatively easy time showing standing under 12003A9. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, so moral of the story on 102.03A9 is if you're representing a non-parent and you think that they can make legitimate arguments under this provision of the code, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape because the burden is not particularly high. Similarly, 102.03A11, which is what we is referred to as a step-parent statute, although it doesn't require you to have been a step-parent, um, this one is even easier if you had a parent that died. That's the one prong that, you know, obviously we're not going to be able to manufacture. It either happened or it didn't. But if anybody who was living in the primary home with a parent and a child and that parent has died is going to get in the door on standing, they don't have to prove anything else. Um, I actually thought, you know, before CJC came to be, when we were going through that case, I thought this was going to be where our case went was the constitutionality of this statute because it has no protections at all to protect the parental rights of the other parent. But um, that didn't didn't happen. And this statute is still there as a really easy way in the door for standing if a parent has died. 
Yeah, and that's an interesting question because that's what we talked about in the beginning of this. Standing is not related really to the ultimate issue. And so when, when you make that comment about there's no protections there about the parents' rights in the standing statute, just as the words are written, right? In the beginning of a case, uh, that parental fitness um, is not really a defense, right? I mean, it's not really, you can't really... You could try and see what a judge might do, but the way I understand the way the law reads and they interrelate to each other, that's not a ground to bring to like to dismiss the suit because in the standing statute, for example, it doesn't recognize or they haven't overcome that parental presumption of fitness. That's an ultimate issue to be decided at a final trial. I think some litigators or some some creative family law attorneys out there probably should start trying to do that either through summary judgment or just some procedural motion to dismiss and just try it Um, because there's not any cases that I can see where that has been done and where the trial court seems to address that. It does seem right now that the, the pathway is that that's an ultimate issue which unfortunately we all know what that means. A case could be pending for a year. You have non-parent conservators who meet the standing requirement, even if it's razor thin, but the facts support it. And so, and and if they're appointed as joint managing conservators, non-parent, right, with a parent, then they're in the life of that kiddo of a three, four, five, six, seven year old kiddo. And for that whole year of time, I mean, that's, that's a long time. Um, and things change. And of course, that can affect that child developmentally, uh, emotionally, and all kinds of ways um, where the legislature, the courts probably should address that and give that mechanism to address that early on. So, you know, early on right now under 102.03.89 or 102.03.811, there's absolutely not any protection for the fit parent presumption and, the, and protecting parental rights. Where parents need to raise the issue is if there is a temporary orders hearing. That's where you can cut it out at the beginning. And even if your case is going to last a year, they shouldn't be getting any rights right then unless they can overcome that presumption. And as a parent, when you're representing a parent, you do not want to let them agree to get let the other people in the door, because once you let them in the door, their case is going to get better and better and better. Um, yeah, that's that's a good point to raise for family law attorneys that may be listening to this particular podcast, because sometimes it makes sense, you know, to, to agree to something and as you're negotiating or people want to do what they think are the right thing. But in, in this new era of post in CJC, if you agree to that, you're potentially waiving that down the road um, and, and it, it's a risk. Now, I don't know, and you and I have debated this before because we're working together on a case and whether or not someone agrees to the appointment of a non-parent um, in temporary orders, if that has a an effect on the ultimate issue of whether or not that has a, an impact on addressing that parental fitness presumption, meaning does that parent in some way waive or lessen the burden by them having agreed themselves to appoint the non-parent as a joint conservator or a sole managing conservator? That question hasn't really been addressed. You know, that that's definitely one thing that we're still waiting for some guidance on. Um, I think if I'm representing a parent, I am not going to let them agree. I'm not going to let them agree to let on, unless they're really, you know, bad parents. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yes. And if, you know, as a general, but as a general rule, if I'm representing a good parent or a decent parent who I think can overcome, you know, is is going to hold firm under the fit parent presumption, I'm never going to let them, or I'm strongly going to advise them not to agree to let the non-parent get any type of access under a court order. Yeah, and I think the distinction for our purposes today, for your listeners, is there's a distinction probably between agreeing to temporary conservatorship arrangements versus a final conservatorship arrangement. I don't think there's any question the way the law is right now. If if someone, if a parent agrees to the appointment of a non-parent for managing conservatorship or conservatorship, then that issue is decided going forward. They don't have to meet the standing requirements. They don't have to meet that. They don't have to overcome that fit parent presumption. Um, right, that, that, and that's that, talking about if it's a final order. If it's a final order, the the debate we can have between us, you know, intellectually is is whether or not that has any effect on the final relief sought if a parent agrees to the non-parent being appointed in a temporary conservatorship arrangement. Uh, that has yet to be specifically addressed. This episode of the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. 
providing family law appellate representation across Texas. For more information, visit draperfirm.com or call 469-715-6801. And if I'm representing the non-parent in that situation, I'm 100% going to argue that that agreement on a temporary basis should bear some weight, at least at a minimum, bear some weight when it comes to a final trial. If I'm representing the parent in that situation, I'm going to argue the opposite, obviously. Of course. course. (laughs) I mean, presumably, uh, you know, if the parent is agreeing to to that arrangement on a temporary order, you know, that that ought to have and carry some weight in the in the trier of fact, whoever that is, the jury or the judge. Um, and, and it's really probably more argument, you know, it's more form probably than substance because CJC and the fit parent presumption is still going to apply. The question is just what weight does that evidence have? And if the court is making findings of fact, for example, if the non-parent prevails, uh, if, if whether or not that belongs in the finding of fact and how much weight the court could give that. For example, what if that's the only fact, right, that the court found in a particular case, and the court just ran with that to say, look, that's what the parent agreed to, and I don't see any reason to disrupt that. I mean, you know, is that enough? You know, is that enough to overcome? Because the parent themselves, you know, made that, basically said that that presumption has been overcome by their consent voluntarily. So that would be an interesting question if a case came to that, but obviously you I don't I don't know if it would roll that way. I think you'd have to have other facts to support and overcome that that parental uh, fitness presumption. I do want to talk about what you and I did not address initially in, in working with you. You have raised something for me that for family law litigators contesting and litigating standing. I think we kind of skipped over it quickly. But it's really important to know that standing, as we talked about, is a fact intensive question. It's really important if you're asserting standing to to raise as many facts as you possibly can. But you and I, I think for our listeners, they should be interested to know that the party that is contesting standing, what they have to show is they, they have to show the non-existence of a necessary fact. And so that's why when we're talking about 102.03A9, uh, maybe A11, but that's an and requirement. Those three things of actual care, control, and possession and access, it's all three of those things. And so if the party, if you're on the side of representing a party that's contesting the standing and you can go in and show the court through some of these cases and cite that standard, that there is literally no evidence of one of those quote necessary facts, then that burden shifts over to the other party who is asserting standing under 102.03 A9 or 11, but A9 in this conversation, because all three of those are necessary facts. And so that burden then would shift to that party to prove that there is some evidence on all three of those facts to raise that fact question. And if there is some facts, uh, like we talked about in NRAE BAB, the quote says, even though the available proof is thin, they found the evidence was sufficient. And so it's, it's really important for us to just focus on that for a minute for your listeners who might be litigating that question. That The question is showing the absence of a necessary fact Look critically at your standing statute, at whoever's asserting standing, because there's a lot of them, right? And look inside and go back and do what we don't normally do. Go open that code and reread it, right? And look at what is critically stated in that standing requirement as necessary facts. And if you're on the side of contesting it, see if you can assert evidence to basically dismantle like a three-legged stool and you can remove one of those legs from the stool, And then that burden shifts, because if you can do that and convince the court that one of those three legs of the stool is missing, the case gets dismissed and you win. You know, then you don't go to the temporary orders like you were talking about and have to fight out the parental fitness presumption and all of that. But if you're on the other side, just keep in mind that it's really not that high of a burden to establish a fact question. It's kind of akin to summary judgment of just raising a factual dispute. And as long as you can raise some evidence to support those necessary facts of whichever statute you're asserting standing, then you're at least in the door. Right. You at least get to stay in the in the case and ultimately ask for your relief. So we talked a little bit about how you know, just because you have standing under 
1203, A9 or A11, and probably all the rest, probably any of the statutes under 1203, doesn't mean, it doesn't address the issue of the fit parent presumption or the statutory parental presumption, that those are two separate things. There are other standing statutes, however, that do incorporate the same type of requirements as the fit parent presumption and the parental presumption. And those would be uh, 102.004 and then the grandparent access statutes of 153.432 and 153.433. And this goes back to, you know, Troxel and, you know, when the United States Supreme Court put forth essentially the fit parent presumption, our legislature thought, oh, Troxel was about grandparents. So we're going to add this requirement in for grandparents. So 102.004 provides standing for certain for grandparents and certain other relatives in a custody case, and but it requires a showing right out of the gates of significant impairment. This is a much more difficult hurdle to overcome, and really, you know, now we're seeing now that more cases have come out post CJC that you know the significant impairment is the standard to overcome the fit parent presumption. So if you can't show that right out of the gates under 102.04, you're out, you lose. Yeah, there's no question 102.04, uh, that's a whole different show uh, to address and break that down because that's a very, very misunderstood topic. Um, it's commonly misapplied, it's commonly misunderstood, it's commonly taken for granted. Uh, the standard is very high. The cases are very strictly construed and the facts that have to be presented. Uh, for example, it can't just be a presumption of significant harm. You have to show actual, you know, physical harm or significant harm. Uh, there can't just be, a, oh, my God, that parent smokes marijuana every day. And, is, and if I let that child in that parent's house, you know, it's going to cause lung damage or whatever. I mean, assumptions and presumptions just aren't going to make it. Um, and so it's that that is a very, very difficult burden to me. Um, and that's something where if you're not if you're not comfortable with that statute and you have grandparents coming to you as a family law uh, practitioner, uh, I would definitely get with somebody who is more comfortable to guide you through it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take it or deal with it. It just means you probably need to get with somebody who's got experience in dealing with that. Now, I would tell you uh, a lot of times the grandparent cases that uh, are brought to us as practitioners, right? They don't have a choice, right? I mean, the facts are bad enough. Uh, maybe one of the parents have died or commonly it's some kind of a drug abuse or family violence situation or a combination of that, and or maybe a mix of mental health issues with one or both parents, their CPS history typically or something. And But if it's not that bad or that extreme, but it's bad enough, I mean, the grandparents probably just don't have a choice, but I think it's really incumbent upon us family law practitioners to be very honest and blunt with those grandparents that, hey, spending money on this and filing this, you may not be successful. Or what I will often say to them is we might be successful in the beginning of the case, but your expectations need to be clear that look at these parents or that parent is able to correct or address or mitigate these concerns. You know, as the case progresses, we may end up getting, quote, dismissed or we may end up getting removed or, um, you know, or the case you may not be able to ultimately stay in the case and you have to live with that and be okay with the fact that you doing this prompted that parent to get healthier. And that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing for your grandchild and that parent um, because it's really, uh, it's really hard for grandparents to have initial standing and, and, and meet that requirement. But even if you do, it's almost even more difficult, especially in this post in race CJC era to ultimately be successful and have the court appoint you in some kind of non-parent conservatorship arrangement. And it's really incumbent upon our family law professionals to make sure that we explain that. Cause I think a lot of our new family law professionals don't do that. And they set those grandparents up for expectations. They end up spending a lot of money and, and ultimately get really, really frustrated. So if you are representing a parent against a grandparent or other relative that is filed under 102.004, then absent really egregious circumstances involving the parent, you want to file a plea to the jurisdiction or if it was an intervention, a motion to strike the grandparents and try to get them kicked out immediately. You don't want to give them, an you should be able to get them dismissed right out of the gates. 
And that, that way, you're never giving them the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves before a final trial. Because the burden here is at the time of filing for them to have standing. And if they don't meet it, then the case is over. Now, I guess yeah, that, you, know, you were talking about, you know, they probably did meet it at the beginning and now they've rehabilitated themselves. But regardless, unless your parent has really, really bad facts against them, and I mean really bad, the cases show this is very, very hard to prove significant impairment. You've got to try and get them kicked out right at the beginning. You know, I've had people yeah, they, to deal, you know, where attorneys have let these cases flounder for 10 months. You know, they've had to go through discovery. They've had to go through everything. And I look at what they've got. I'm like, why didn't you move to dismiss this case immediately? Yeah, it's interesting how often that happens. And it's interesting how often people on both sides don't address it correctly. For example, one of the most basic elements is you don't file the grandparent affidavit as we know it to be, right? The requisite affidavit that supports the standing requirement. Um, and how many folks on the other side that are contesting that standing representing a parent don't file, they, you're not required to file an affidavit, but in my opinion, that's what you should do because the court's required to look at the four corners of those affidavits and deciding really whether it even proceed or, or not. Um, it's not the same. I get it under temporary orders and flipping custody and all that. It's a whole different topic, but but in my opinion, that's that's the way to address that. Now, the, re the real problem you have when you're representing the parent and the grandparent at least gets in the door, there's sufficient evidence, right, to, to meet the standing requirement and the dismissal or the jurisdiction claim is not granted. The real question is, what do you do? Because there's there's no other way to, to dismiss it from there, because what you just said is really important from the litigate from the practitioner's perspective, representing the parent anyway, is that once they're in the door, it, it's it's at the time of filing. That's when to meet that standard. So let's say, for example, what you and I were talking about a while ago, a, a parent has drug history or whatever and has gone out to address that, gone to rehab, has now successfully re-engaged uh, in employment, a career, their own family or whatnot. I mean, they're, you know, they've addressed all of those concerns theoretically that were brought uh, for the grandparent in this hypothetical to meet standing under 10204. The question is, how do you address that and accelerate that to get to a final trial? Because at that point, it's not standing. At that point, you're dealing with the fit parent presumption. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you if they get, if the court lets the non-parent in the door and you really believe they didn't have standing, that's when you're going to mandamus. And if you don't know how to mandamus, there are you know a handful of us out there that love to do it. Oh, <laughs> Holly Draper. Yes, I can give call you, me. Like, I, I have your phone number. I have all the briefing on standing for mandamusing, so call me, and I will be happy to help do that. But you know, don't just because judges make wrong decisions all the time. Judges, I have seen almost the vast majority of cases I have had dealing with this issue. They feel sorry for the grandparents, especially if you've had a parent die. They are sympathetic to those grandparents, and they want to let them in. But if the law does not back that up file a mandamus. The Court of Appeals is not going to have that same level of sympathy that the trial court does. Yeah, and I would I would say, too, there's a distinction between seeking mandamus and re recommending somebody to pay those fees, right, under 10204 in the grandparent standing or other relative standing statute versus the other 10203A9 and 11, because that's more factually intensive um, and it's much easier to meet those standing requirements. A mandamus under 10204 is almost a given. I mean, if it's in the budget for a party um, and a court has found standing and you have properly preserved that issue by contesting it and objecting to it, I, I mean, you almost have nothing to lose by taking it up on mandamus. The law is so strict in, in the construction of those facts that if a party can afford it, you, it's just it's kind of a no brainer to try the mandamus. Under the other statute, 10203, I don't know if you agree with me, but that's probably not quite as much of a no-brainer because it's really easy to raise that fact question and to get standing under 10203. Uh, you know, I think if you believe that there is no standing, even if it's under 10203A9, um, it's probably worth you know, having an appellate lawyer look at the, read the record. Usually those transcripts are not going to be that long. Um, pay him a little bit so they can review it and give you an opinion because you still might be able to get them out. But it is, again, yep. it's not as easy, but it's if you believe that the court got it wrong, 
it's worth exploring. I think it's worth talking about for the folks listening here. What do you think? Because from your perspective, uh, what is the advice from a trial to a trial attorney like myself if we're needing to properly preserve that issue for appeal? You know, for example, we all know that you can't waive standing, right? So if, if you didn't contest it in the beginning and you made that mistake, one, just know that you should raise it as soon as you become aware of it. You just heard this podcast and your case has been pending for six months and you're like, oh, gosh, I should have done that. Well, do it right, because you can't waive it. So talk about that from your perspective. I'm now I'm playing the interviewer, but you know, what, what would you say to us trial litigators that we should do to properly preserve that issue? For example, is mandamus even required? So I would, if you have never raised the issue or you haven't raised it well, leading up to wherever you are now, you know, I would say you wanna file a plea to the jurisdiction and you wanna brief the heck out of it. You want to have all the law in there. I mean, I, I have seen some really bad pleas in jurisdiction that have very little law, don't apply it to this case. They're they're terrible. You want a really solid plea to the jurisdiction that is essentially going to form the basis of your mandamus if you have to file one. Um, and you got to you set a hearing and you're going to object to doing anything else in that case before there's a hearing on the jurisdictional issue, whether that's temp orders or trial or whatever, because you know, you're going to make the argument, this is jurisdictional. The court cannot consider anything else until we address this issue. Um, and what happens, you know, because we all know what happens. We're just busy, right? We're trying to address our clients. We have a hectic schedule. We don't have time to get into Westlaw and look it up and have these beautiful briefs. One, I would say that's where we need to have phone numbers like Holly Draper and reach out to you, right? Because you can help with things like that. And and I think young family or practitioners or even somewhat experienced ones, we need to recognize when we're at that limitation time-wise and we, because this is not an issue to jack around with, right? I mean, if you're going to do it, don't just take one of these, you know, standard forms and file it. Don't take it for granted. Uh, make sure that you, if you're going to do it, do it right. You know, now you agree with that? I'm guessing. Yes. And, I, you know, let's say that a, you know, a lawyer filed a bare bones, not very good plea to the jurisdiction, or let's say they even called it something else that was wrong, but it was obvious that they were really making a plea to the jurisdiction argument and it didn't go well and you, you lose on the plea to the jurisdiction. I've had people come to me at that point and we file a motion to reconsider and we brief the heck out of it there and we get, all, you know, we, We'd rather let our trial judge have an opportunity to have all the information and make the right decision before we have to go to the mandamus. And then if we go to the mandamus, we can show them, look, we presented the trial court with the law, the correct law, all of the information, and they still made the wrong decision. Now, let me ask you a, a sort of an elephant in the room question, because some of our judges, we're not going to name names, some of the judges won't grant that motion to reconsider. That's a discretionary call on the part of the court, right? And But let's say that you need to, like you, you realize now you've had coffee with Holly Draper or you heard a podcast from her and you realize now you left out a certain critical piece of evidence to, that you think knocks out a necessary fact, right? And you need that motion to reconsider, how does the trial litigator, what do you file? Uh, this is obviously a trick question. We know the answer, but you know, what is that answer for those listening to our conversation today? So the key on a mandamus is that whatever you're going to argue has to be in the record. That doesn't mean it has to be in a transcript, it, but it could be in the clerk's record. So if you file a motion to reconsider, even if the court just denies it or doesn't give you a hearing, it's now in the record because you've filed it with the court. If the court won't give you a hearing on something and you really need it for, you know, I need to get this piece of evidence in that the court isn't aware of, I would file some sort of objection and say, look, court, this is the evidence I have. Here's an affidavit from my client that's explaining right. it. And then if the court doesn't give you that hearing, you can now rely on whatever was filed to let the appellate court know, look, the trial court was presented with this information and they still wouldn't give us a hearing. 
And that's my point is from the litigation, from the practitioner standpoint, right? What you want to do is I think at that point, it's an eggs in the all basket, one basket kind of situation. When you file that motion for reconsideration, a lot of us, again, for time's sake, we just follow one page, you know, just straight motion for reconsideration. But we're not thinking on appeal or for that mandamus. We're not really thinking that far ahead. But let me just say out loud for those people listening, if you have a non-parent versus parent situation, it is incumbent, whichever side you're on, you've got to be thinking about these kinds of technicalities because the courts of appeal and the Supreme Court are looking for these kinds of cases. And you don't want to find yourself in that situation where you represented one side or the other, lots and lots of fees out the door, and you missed a technicality, right? Like, uh, you know, what you don't raise a certain objection or certain evidence. The reason I'm saying that is because in that motion for reconsideration, that's where you need to think of however many affidavits, plural, or affidavit needs to be filed. You need to attach the evidence that you think you could raise. You need to go back, in my opinion, if you have the ability, get that transcript from before, show the court in your motion what was addressed and what was not addressed, what you've now become aware of and why that evidence essentially knocks out an essential fact. And if you can put that in the record, like what you, Holly, you're saying, and the court then denies the reconsideration, um, then you have the ability to hire somebody like Holly and take it up on a mandamus because you've then properly preserved it. Now, would you agree with me that you need to push the court to to actually deny the hearing or what if the court just doesn't schedule it? So I think they just want to ignore you. Or a ruling one way or another, whether that's a hearing or that's just denying the motion. So and I think it's very court specific on how exactly to go about that. Yeah, because oftentimes a judge will just friendly, you know, we call it chamber, right? They'll just bring us in chambers or whatnot. And or even these days through email, they'll just say, well, let's get what's here X, Y, Z. And maybe we'll take this up when we get there or you get to the reconsideration, but it's not heard. You know, the court gets you off on a dialogue about agreeing to pretrial stuff. And maybe a trial is set for three or four months down the road. And you forget in the moment as the practitioner to force that ruling. Right. So for our listeners, it's really, really important to remember on this issue for standing when you're dealing with non-parent and parent. I mean, really, anyway, but specifically for non-parent and parent litigation, you've got to make sure you're thinking about properly preserving that objection on standing. So we're just about out of time. There's one more standing issue I wanted to be sure and raise, and that relates to the grandparent access statute. 15432 and 153433. This is sort of similar to 102.04 in that you have to have a showing of significant impairment. And for grandparent access, you have to attach an affidavit that is going to show that denial of access to the grandparent is going to significantly impair the child. This is a very, very high burden to meet. And I mean, I get hired on these cases regularly. And I come in and I file a motion to dismiss for lack, you know, plea the jurisdiction, basically, or motion to dismiss for lack of standing because their affidavit is deficient. They should not get a hearing. They should, no witness should ever take the stand when you have a deficient affidavit. You should be able to get it dismissed immediately. I mean, I, I have hearings on these that they last 10 or 15 minutes and it's completely over. I've had people hire me where the case has languished for 10 months, a year, where the attorney never filed this motion and the other side never filed any more substantive affidavit. Usually what happens if we file that uh, plea to the jurisdiction, if they're, they'll try and beef up their affidavit. If, they're, if the lawyer is any good, they will file an amended affidavit trying to beef it up. Most of the time, if they had silver bullets that were going to get there, they would have included them to begin with. So... Um, if you are defending against a grandparent access case, kill it as fast as you can. Don't let don't let them dig. The statute does not give them the right to do discovery and dig for that evidence to prove significant impairment. Same thing under 12004. The statute does not let you do discovery to dig for it. That's why you got to file it right out of the gates. That's a whole other topic to break down. That's that we can spend an hour on that statute just in, in and of itself. Yes, and de definitely a, a podcast for another day. But I didn't want to let our standing discussion go without 
making sure that any attorneys out there listening know that's a standing issue, the grandparent affidavit. And if you're representing the grandparent, you better be sure it is rock solid and you understand the law and what needs to be in that affidavit. And if you're representing the parent, you better go attack it right out of the gates. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about earlier, that if, if you don't take very many grandparent cases and you're taking one on or consulting with grandparents, make sure you research that statute and what's required because the case law is very strict in terms of how to meet that significant impairment standard. It's very high. So we're basically out of time, but one last question I like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast is if you could give one piece of advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? My piece of advice would be to go try as many hearings as you possibly can um, and overcome the fear of looking stupid overcome the fear or manage that of not being successful uh, because ultimately I think where I have been successful is because I just, I just did so many hearings and so many trials that you learn what the judges know, what they want to hear. You learn what they like to hear. You learn why and how they rule in, you know, in, in, in those situations and win or lose, that's really the greatest teacher. Plus you end up going up against some of the really good family law attorneys and you just, you, you learn that way. And probably the other thing, other corollary piece of advice to that, cause I did not follow this advice initially. I would try to be, um, you know, make better friends with colleagues um, and uh, use humor where you can Try not to take our cases personally. Don't personalize it. You know, our colleagues are typically mothers, dads, family members. I mean, they're just like everybody else trying to raise their family and make a living. And cases can really, uh, you can really do a lot of good for clients when you're able to pick up the phone and have a relationship with the other attorney and just talk your way through them. So try to be collegial. It's okay to be firm. It's okay to go knock heads when you have to. But definitely don't take it personally and don't personalize the other uh, side if, if you can avoid that. But try as many cases and hearings as you possibly can. If you're not able to do that, uh, invest in the time. I know being out of the office and not being available and always stress about that, but invest in the time to go watch trials and hearings um, if you can. Excellent advice. So where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? Our website is www.evansfamilylawgroup.com. Um, or I have the website agreeddivorces.com, which is a whole nother topic some other day, but that's where you can go to find out more about us. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, take a second, leave us a review and subscribe so you can enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.